This episode has been brought to you by Audible.com. I'm not going to do their pre-roll read. You already know what they're about. If you like audiobooks, this is the place for you. If you visit audibletrial.com slash lowres, you will get a free audiobook download of your choosing. How cool. How exciting. This is a real novelty. I bet you won't hear that offer on other podcasts. Certainly not. Alternatively, you can go over to lowres.live slash store and buy from my own new audiobook division, BitCrush Books. How about that? Go ahead and download my 2014 novella, Practice Makes Perfect in audiobook form, as read by Nicholas Joroff, a.k.a. The Wizard of Cause. That's just one of a number of goodies that are currently in stock in the low-res store, including the fast-selling Let's Play Crewneck, which has been limited to only 40. That's audibletrial.com slash low-res or lowres.live slash store. Go check them out. And if you can't get enough of movies... Join our Patreon crew. You will find next week's episode already available, a review of the 2018 direct-to-Netflix thriller Cam, as tackled by the cinematologist Jacob A. Miller. I had no idea what this movie was. Never heard of it, but he pitched it to me, and I said, yeah, 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 go ahead. Go do that. Patreon.com slash Lores if you would like to get that. Patrons who contribute a dollar or more per month will be able to receive this as an early exclusive. Now, on with the show. This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lores, and today we are going to be discussing Jim Cummings' Thunder Road. Don't we talk? Yeah, I'll talk. You don't want me to talk. I got dirt on all of y'all. I'll start with myself. My wife left me a year and a half ago. There, laughing up. I slept in my car. Three weeks. Jerry saw it. Isn't that right, Jerry? Yeah, I brought you breakfast. Thank you so much for doing that, Jerry. That meant a lot back then. Well, folks, we are back after a two-week hiatus, and let me fill you in at the top of the show before I delve into the movie itself. I just got back from a trip to South Korea and Japan. Oh, yes, it was quite the time. I, uh, you know, I didn't experience that culture shock that they tell you about, but, uh, you know, very, uh, very interesting experience in that the bathroom in South Korea was, you know, it was just a, it was a hole. There was just a hole in the floor where you're supposed to shower and do, you know, the, whatever. Uh, but I had an amazing time in both countries, especially Japan. It was everything you'd ever imagine it to be and more. Picture Akira, but without the giant pink blobs and those kids that look like they've done eight rounds of chemotherapy. It was wild. A mentally enriching experience, as short as it was, for sure. While it pained me to be away all this time. The result of that is that we now have hours of footage for the projects coming out on the channel and lowres.live the hub for everything that I'm doing. And if you're one of those weird people that only tunes into the podcast and not the YouTube channel Lowres Wonderbread, don't worry. I had two 15-hour flights. You know, I really thought that these were going to pain me, but luckily they had this system where, you know, you could watch the television in front of you and they had so many films from all across the globe, mostly Hollywood movies that happen to feature Asian people in them, you know, like uh, uh, kind of a Great Wall kind of deal. You know, it was not exactly high tier movies on this on this flight, uh, but they did have some very good Korean films. I didn't check out the Japanese bunch. I will say that the highlight of the many films that I watched on these two 15 hour flights happened to be 
The Wolf Brigade, which was an adaption of a Japanese anime, but it was made in South Korea and distributed by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers seems to be getting into the international game tenfold, which is very exciting for me to see these kinds of international films. And South Korea in particular has an immense amount of quality in the filmmakers that they've, uh, you know, developed over the past 30 some odd years. So to see some new blood work with this kind of massive budget that Warner Brothers has to offer is an exciting prospect for anyone who is a fan of international cinema. You know, very good stuff there. Very good action. I also wanted to talk about one other thing before we get into the movie today, and it relates to the YouTube channel. If you keep up with you know, both this this podcast and the channel, you may have noticed that I haven't released a proper video in almost a month. I think the last one was actually uh, that Viceland documentary. You know, that is for two reasons. The first is that I've been in production on a comedy series since the start of about that time. It's going to be something that is shot in bulk and released independently in 2019 through lowres.live. That was actually one of the main reasons I started this podcast, that I was going to be away working for a period of time on something that was going to be very extensive. And, you know, it's considered a death now for anybody if you go completely off the grid. And you can't, you know, you just can't do that. So a podcast is a good way to keep consistent in your life and also keep yours truly active and doing something outside of, you know, this long-term project. If you don't have some kind of immediate release, if you're working on these larger scale things, it can be awfully discouraging uh, seeing, you know, d- diminishes on your on your accounts and your profiles, people growing disinterested with you. We can't have that. Of course not. Uh, you know, if you allow yourself to hit that point where, where, you know, you're becoming discouraged with yourself, it can absolutely be the end of you creatively speaking you know the other you, the other thing you have to worry about is also creative exhaustion this is something that you see from a lot of people on the internet big and small on youtube in particular there is this talk of youtube burnout but i really just think it's creative exhaustion people get really fed up with the kind of content that they're making and people also get fed up with watching that style of content over and over again And the truth is, if you do become known for just doing one thing, you will risk your work becoming derivative or stale to people, which is why I kind of have this ADD complex where I'm hopping between five or six different styles of video that I tend to release. I can, you know, I wind up boring myself if I do something for too long or, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a problem of mine. And I understand that's a part of becoming successful at doing, you know, one particular thing is, you know, having some kind of consistency with it. But, uh, you know, it can also come at a detriment to you psychologically and, uh, you know, just bankrupting your spirit in a way. You don't want to reach that point because it can very well be the end of your career. You don't want to discourage yourself, you know, maybe allowing your work to become very cardboard and offer nothing new to your audience. Or, you know, perhaps something different will happen. I don't know. Maybe the mother of your children will die so you'll leave Hollywood forever to raise your kids. You know, who's to say? But, uh, you know, what I'm getting at is I'm not that interested in tackling smaller projects anymore. And a lot of the channel is videos that are around 2 to 12 minutes in length. And that's been great thus far. Uh, but I don't feel a whole lot of use in putting my time into making videos that are that long and elaborate. I'm not really seeing a big 
payout. Because, and I'm not, I'm not saying that literally, as in like YouTube monetization is fucking me over. I'm just saying I'm not seeing the worth in doing this based off of the returns thus far. So with this year coming to a close, I am aiming to put an end to that for the time being. Maybe something will spring up now and again, who knows, but it's not a priority of mine any longer. What I plan to do instead is start tackling large-scale projects. I'm concentrating almost all of my time and effort onto making longer documentaries and shooting original series and feature films under this label of mine going forward. The first for this new forthcoming soft rebrand is a documentary that I've been working on for a while now, The Death of Saturday Night Live and How to Bring It Back to Life. It's a project that I have been... You know, struggling with, not really struggling, but I, it's, it, you know, it's had my full attention for months. I've read a half dozen books on SNL. I've dove into a vault of ancient SNL episodes and spent hours painting my eyes at the faces of people like Seth Meyers, Jay Moore, Rancid Pete Davidson, some of the worst humans imaginable. You know, it's taken a lot of time to precisely pinpoint what has disrupted this institution of TV comedy, even if it might seem obvious on the surface, and figure out a way for it to be fixed. That should be premiering very soon on the YouTube channel and on our website, lores.live. I have a sneaking suspicion that YouTube and NBC are going to be up to their old tricks, though, based on my prior experience using their clips through fair use. So there may very well be a fuller, more complete version available through the website that will not be accessible on YouTube. But don't hold me to that. That's only if I run into roadblocks. Now, got that all out of the way. On with the proper program here. Honey, honey, I, I'm really not going to be good at this kind of stuff. Yeah. You want me to leave the light on in the hallway for you? It's fine. All right, I'm going to bed, honey. Good night, I love you. Thunder Road is a movie that I discovered through Twitter, through a sassy tweet from Mr. Jim Cummings himself, throwing shade in slaying the new Netflix show The Haunting of Hill House. Among a swarm of writers and filmmakers praising that series, Cummings was perhaps the only derogatory commenter when it came to the show, which, coming from anyone within the system, I found refreshing. But perhaps my mistake was assuming that Jim Cummings was more in that system than he actually is. Cummings' career to date has mostly consisted of menial roles in big productions like The Handmaid's Tale and one-shot short films that have been trotted out along the festival circuit. But the 32-year-old director is quite keen on working independent of the Hollywood empire. I checked his Twitter today and his most recent tweet was an open request for someone to loan him two Canon lenses. So, I think that says well enough. In all regards, Jim Cummings is the DIY director that we were promised when the internet started and filmmaking equipment became affordable. You hear it all the time, directors in their 60s and 70s talking about how there's no reason for anyone to not make a movie, that you can make a movie on your iPhone right now. And that's a completely true statement, I won't deny that. You can probably make a movie with some pipes and feathers right now if you really tried hard enough, but that doesn't mean that anyone is going to watch it. And that's the paradox at this moment. We have a spectrum, and I'll narrow it down to just 1 to 10 where those who fall at a 10 are Martin Scorsese and those who fall at a 1 are the types of guys who make Batman fan films. The internet is mostly consisting of 1s, but that's not to be unexpected, seeing as wide accessibility is easy to come by, but picking up a quality education through hard work is not always as simple as it seems. It takes a certain kind of brain to be open to accepting these problems and trying to change them. 
The difference between a Jim Cummings, Donald Glover, Bo Burnham, the Safdie brothers, and any other director who started out online is that they persevered through that awkward period where everything looked or sounded like shit and figured out how to sharpen their softest edges. That is a result of working alongside talented individuals and having their eyes and ears genuinely open to honest reception. Of the names I mentioned, you can find some of their earliest, most clumsy works on YouTube right now. But nobody is ever watching that. Nobody's searching for that. Nobody cares about that. Because they aren't considered amateurs. They're not considered YouTubers. The work that they've put out over the past five or ten years has been enough to speak for who they are as creative artists. They have escaped that prison. I want to touch back on one of those points I just made before and divert it into my own experience as someone who is considered independent and outside the system, working alongside talented individuals. This is a highly underrated part of the growth process for anybody creative. Who you are surrounded by and working with consistently affects you in ways that you wouldn't immediately assume. I see this all the time in folks who attempt to go it solo, and while I do believe it is incredibly important to learn every step of any creative process, every function and utility that needs to be used and addressed, even the most peripheral of aspects, it's a heavier task to be a one-man machine than what the determined individual may believe. You might figure out a way to become the greatest at video editing, audio editing, photo retouching, or, or at maybe marketing, but you only have so many hours in a day. Having someone to handle the slack for you can be incredibly beneficial in keeping yourself sane and avoiding exhaustion or discouragement. And those roles can't just go out to anyone. You need reliable, determined people who offer skill and perhaps more importantly, loyalty in exchange for that exact thing, skill and loyalty. It's not as simple as getting together with a group of friends and shooting something because what any given project means to you may not mean the same to others. You might be working with a coalition of guys from your film school and find out the hard way that only two of the four actually want to be what you want to be when push comes to shove. There are a lot of creative people out there who just like to talk, who don't necessarily daydream their aspirations or think, someday I'll be this, but think more in terms of, I'll cross this bridge when I get to it. That kind of attitude will result in long-term pitfalls, and it is important to nip this behavior in the bud if you are one of these people or if you are working with one of these people. A lackadaisical mindset like that from just one person can bring your entire coalition down. I learned this the hard way quite a few times since I got into filmmaking around eight years ago. There are certain types of people that I consider landmines, and you should avoid them at all costs. Sometimes they may be difficult to decipher at first, like you'll link up with someone who seems earnestly determined to be whatever it is they're aiming for. Maybe it's an actor, a comedian, a director, go down the list of any popular occupation difficult to make a consistent living from. They will almost always be on board at the jump, and over time, that energy and interest will peter out. Suddenly, you know, you're going to be working with a guy who prioritizes his time at Home Depot over the project you've been involved in for two months. This kind of guy is what I'll call the LE, the low energy. He's not a good fellow to bring into the fold when it comes to a circle of folks making big decisions. The LE is also the type of person you will probably encounter the most when working on projects with an inexperienced group of people. He'll like to frame his issues within a source of reason, because it is incredibly reasonable and logical to put your financial priorities above anything else. Everyone ought to do that, and you can't successfully really do anything if you don't do that. But 
Here's the thing. Making movies, or really making anything that can't be sold directly in a wholesale department store, isn't a reasonable or logical pursuit. It's a gamble and it requires sacrifice. Bringing this guy in as your lead actor, as your writer, your producer, whatever it might be, is going to blow up in your face big time. I can give you a personal assurance of that. But, you know, sometimes you can get away with having this type of individual come in and out of the picture in a small role, because anything more than that runs the risk of damaging the ship you're trying to build. And this is a ship. Folks are going to consistently attempt to minimize whatever it is you're doing. Maybe you have your sights set on a feature film, or perhaps you've been writing all the uh, super hulock fan fiction that Tumblr could ever desire from 2012 to 2014, and you decided, hey, I'm going to jump into writing the great American novel. You're going to run into people who just think that's utter nonsense and this is just some kind of hobby, that it's all a big uh, a joke, essentially. This It's like, oh, that's cute. You're doing that? Okay, cool. Well, I got to go off to Starbucks now and make somebody's coffee. That's a real job. Please, listen, you got to avoid taking credence to any kind of feedback that these people will ever offer you. Sometimes it'll be your friends. Sometimes it'll be your parents because, you know, they have this firm idea in place of what... How, you know, how a person makes a living, you just got to block all that out. But I'm kind of straying from my guidelines here, which directly relate to people who have already taken the leap and gotten into that process and are reaching out to individuals as collaborators. Because, like I mentioned before, there are absolutely people in the creative field that you must avoid and dispatch of immediately. Stop giving people the benefit of the doubt. You have to be cold-hearted and think logically. Now, the second type of person that I need to address here today is going to be usually looked at as kind of a misfit within your group, okay? that That's how they'll be identified by you, okay? Not me, the outsider, but by you. Let's say you got a crew of eight people all holding pivotal spots in your itty-bitty production company, and you're about to start work on a feature or a series or maybe just a short film. And there is a personality aspect of this one person, this one guy, that doesn't quite coalesce with the rest of the group. This one person is bringing in some kind of outside world issue of their own into your circle and using it to paint over the process you're involved in. And this is the worst case scenario. Uh, you know, maybe a good example of this would be Kirk Cameron on Growing Pains, right? And I know a lot of the audience out there, you're, you're a bunch of guys in your mid-twenties for the most part. We got some, some girls out there too who are designated boys as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, you have, you have Kirk Cameron on Growing Pains and this is a sitcom from the late 80s early 90s, probably before, you know, the time of a lot of you out there. When Kirk Cameron found religion about midway through the series on Growing Pains, he decided, you know what, faith comes first. And he didn't want his character getting involved in any kind of sinful activities. Now, Kirk Cameron's character, I forget the name of his character on the show, not Ben Seaver. Who, what, what was his character name? I think it was like Cal Seaver or something. I don't know. Regardless, it's not really relevant. He was a 16-year-old boy, a real, a real, you know, hooligan, if you will. And, you know, he, he engaged in everything that you would expect a 16-year-old boy in the 80s to engage in, right? So once this Christianity took hold in Kirk Cameron's brain, and it could have really been anything. I'm not citing religion in particular as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, flaw that, uh, you, you know, it's going to cause problems regardless. I think some people are just 
designated in this kind of way to be receptive towards ideas or ideologies that are bigger than themselves. So when he found religion, there were no more hookups, no parties, every script involving his character, Cal Seaver, uh, you know, that all had to be removed. These things needed to be changed. He fell out of sync with the tower that was being built on the set of Growing Pains, the tower in this case being a forgettable 80s sitcom. You don't always have to like the people you work with, but you have to like working with them. One way to ensure the opposite, or get basted with the toxic label of difficult to work with, is by pulling shit like this. Because when those otherwise minute aspects of shooting are suddenly amplified because one person is viewing them as an issue of two extremes, everybody's going to start whispering to themselves, the fuck is with this guy? It turns you into a buzzkill and an anchor on the production, and most of the time, it'll kill your career. Now, let me be clear. There is a massive difference between this and saying, ah, you know, this script isn't really my cup of tea, or reading an explicit scene and going, ah, you know, I'm not really comfortable doing a fully nude sex sequence with Kathy Bates. Everyone has moments where they disagree with the material and will bow out or want to alter it. Sometimes those alterations can work and sometimes they don't. But coming across a Kirk Cameron is only bad news for you, that person, and everyone else involved. Because it's not just a matter of creative clashing, it's a matter of ideology and ego intertwined, which on their own are two very powerful forces and enough to turn someone into a lunkhead. There's a reason why Kirk Cameron went from starring in mainstream comedy films with Dudley Moore to doing the Left Behind series. And it's not simply because he's a Christian. The last type of person worth noting who is likely to put a damper on things is the one who thinks that they're the alpha dog. They have all the answers even if you're in charge and you've made all the decisions on how to run things. Depending on who you're dealing with, this type of person can either be the biggest cancer or the most manageable of the three archetypes mentioned. You hear stories about these guys all the time. Now, Kevin Smith has a pretty lengthy tale about his time on the set of Cop Out and how Bruce Willis took advantage of Smith's own inability to use his backbone and wound up leading many of the aspects of the production, and one could easily argue for the worse. Will Smith is another one of these guys who will pick out a script just to make himself look good and then strong-arm the studio into going with a screenwriter of his choosing. He did this with Old Boy when he was attached to the remake, as well as I Am Legend. If you're a director, these guys are playing a different game than you, and you have to note that. The goal may be the same, to make them, as an actor, look good in any particular scene, but your aim is to create a great scene, and their aim is to create a moment where they look really cool. If you can harness this kind of individual, it can actually result in some great things. But that can only happen if they are both willing to play ball and have the smarts to know when to let go and put their fate in the director's hands. If you're just starting out and working with a crew of unknowns, then nobody should be occupying that position. There are no Will Smiths on a film with a budget of $600, okay? Anyone who thinks they've earned something because they have 400 Twitter followers and 10 people watching their Twitch streams is never going to be worth the weight that they bring. You can replace this guy with a sex worker from Craigslist and nobody's going to bat an eye. Finding collaborators is a lot like connecting puzzle pieces, right? And you can't force certain pieces into place because if you do, you're going to mangle the puzzle. Moreover, your grandmother with Alzheimer's is going to try to use that puzzle after and that shit ain't going to fly because she's going to have violent spasms thinking the puzzle isn't right, but it will be right and you'll have just caused her an early death due to your own selfishness. So, uh, 
you know, Thunder Road. This is a new movie, Thunder Road. This uh, this film by Jim Cummings on the surface wouldn't appear as if much collaboration occurred within the movie since Cummings' name is sprinkled all over the credits. It's truly, uh, you know, admirable, if you ask me. He's the writer, director, the star, the producer. I think there may have been a line producer or editor credit somewhere in there. This is his baby, unvarnished and untampered. And when you are that kind of hands-on director that positions himself as the star, and you wrote the piece, and you're making all the decisions around you and your character, you absolutely run the risk of being too self-indulgent. A prime example of this, working to a filmmaker's detriment, may be Garden State, the 2004 Zach Braff vehicle that, at the time, was not only well-received, but performed well at the box office. But now, in 2018... It doesn't really hold up, and I think it told us something about Braff that only became apparent with his 10-year follow-up, Wish I Was Here. Nobody quite seems to think that what Braff is unfolding with his story is actually as important as what Braff believes it to be. But that enormous obstacle is avoided here with Thunder Road, because what Jim Cummings gives the viewer is warmth in place of a self-centered attitude. One of the main problems with Zach Braff's work, especially Wish I Was Here, is that he rarely gives the other characters time to shine on their own. And the result of that is that these movies can be viewed in a tube through the perspectives of these often isolated and egocentrical characters that Braff portrays. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with that, if executed correctly, it becomes an unintentional folly in his filmmaking. Thunder Road almost seemingly takes note of these kinds of problems and successfully diverts them at every corner. It avoids feeling like a vanity piece, even if some of the takes of Cummings monologuing as his downtrodden police officer character Jim happen to run a little too long. For many, it will be an all-too-relatable film in that it highlights a central problem of our time, one that I have written a number of articles on and also talked about in YouTube videos. Emotional instability among adults who cannot assume the role of adult. Our lead character, Jim, is a father, an ex-husband, and an officer of the law who means well, but cannot seem to figure out when to step back when he needs to step back. He's an interesting case in that he isn't the typical protagonist who simply is bad at quote-unquote adulting. He's a grown man who realizes that he must be the leader that those in his life desperately need him to be, but at every turn he fumbles the ball. He'll start out on the right foot, say the wrong thing, and then instead of keeping a calm demeanor and carrying on, will melt down trying to correct that error. This is a character trait that I've witnessed in many young men over the years. The guy who tries to straighten up and fly right, but doesn't realize that perception matters as much as action. That the scene you present can often be as or even more powerful than the directive you take. While that may not be considered fair... Few things in life are fair. I don't think it's fair that I can't chew bubblegum without losing chunks of my tongue in the process, but I'm a man born with a thick tongue. These things are entirely beyond my control, and you can either sit on the floor and cry about it, or you can adapt. Thunder Road is a good movie. It is a transgressive film that is ripe for our era and real without being blackpilled. And that is another thing that is very necessary today in our culture and in our entertainment is honest art that does not offer 
a bullet at the end. Because we, we, you know, over the past 15 some odd years, if you look at television from the arts, if you look at movies from the arts, you have this almost fake earnest, fake sincerity that is gushing from, you know, I, 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 when I'm talking about this, all I imagine is Jim Halpert from The Office. I think he is the embodiment of everything that is wrong right now, is people who are trying to do the right thing and they fuck up and then they have an honest conversation with their spouse or their loved one and then they assume that they're wrong and everything is fixed or not really fixed but it's kind of better by the end it's this kind of attitude that yeah you know what we gave this relationship our best shot and it wound up in a divorce and the kids are gonna be better as a result of this yada 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 this kind of attitude that accepting problems and not doing something about it aside from walking away from them is going to somehow make things better this, this, and you know, I'm rambling right now and kind of incoherent, but I, I, maybe I should have formulated these thoughts before recording. I don't know. But I feel like we've become oversaturated on that kind of fake earnestness, and it is time for something that is genuinely honest and going to address these hard subject matters and also offer a solution, which is a difficult thing. It is a very difficult thing. Thunder Road manages to address many, many difficult issues, and it doesn't wrap it up in a nice bow at the end, but our protagonist manages to overcome these issues in a particularly dark, but also in a true way. It feels, it feels real, and that is why I consider this movie a great watch and one of the more intriguing films to have come out this year. If we wind up getting more movies that tackle the same kind of approach that Thunder Road has taken, then we will be in a very good spot as far as cinema goes in the years to come. Thank you for tuning into Movies This Week. I do want to apologize again for going off the grid due to travel. And to make it up to you, we do have a number of new episodes coming and at a more rapid pace. As I said before, you can already download next week's episode on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash lowres. I'll also be releasing that episode on Hold the Dark soon, and that will be a Patreon exclusive. In the coming weeks, we'll have some new guests to discuss movies of the past, present, and future. I would give the names, but there is this podcasting curse where you announce your guests before the episodes are recorded, and then, you know, just suddenly, bad things start to happen, and they never show up. Like, one time, I was supposed to interview David Liebhardt and the director of Jodorowsky's Dune. I don't even remember the guy's name. He promised me he would come on the show, this guy fucking liar and a series of hiccups prevented both of those interviews from happening not long after i announced them so i'm not going to do that here these are the foolish choices of eager young men foolish choices that i refuse to partake in now as a grizzled old man okay all right again patreon.com slash if you'd like to get that early episode of next week's show thanks again for listening and i will see you soon mm-hmm.